Hey friends, welcome to Queerology, a podcast on belief and being. I'm your host today, Jennifer Knapp, sitting in for Matthias Roberts. Welcome to episode 80. And I'm seeing people get healthy and living fulfilling lives. And in some ways that feels way more satisfying than trying to convince all the straight people that we have a right to exist. We're here, we're existing. This episode marks the two year anniversary of Queerology. Now, don't get too upset that Matthias isn't here. He's gonna show up in a second. Actually, we thought it'd be really fun because the first episode ever, I was a guest on the show. And I've always thought it would be really fun to get good listener, quiet, patient, and kind Matthias to sit in the hot seat and answer a few questions. He's actually a lovely man, has a lovely story, and I can't wait for you guys to hear a little bit more of it. So today, I'm going to introduce to you, perhaps you've heard of him, his name's Matthias Roberts. He's a writer, therapist, host and creator of Queerology, a podcast on belief in being. He's also a pretty darn smart guy. He's got a master's in theology and culture, counseling psychology, And to top it all off, right now, he's working on his first book. It's an exploration of sexual shame and sexual ethics, which is set to release on Fortress Press in 2020. So, as he would say, okay, let's go ahead and dive in. Matthias, you're in the hot seat? Yeah. Welcome to Queerology. How does that feel? (laughs) It feels so weird. Well, I am going to, I've dreamed of this moment for a good year now. I want to give you a little bit of dose of your medicine and start with a Queerology tradition of asking you, how do you identify and how has faith helped inform that identity? Yeah, I knew this was coming. (laughs) No, there's no way you're getting out of it. Feel the burn, buddy. Feel the burn. Yeah, this is not an easy question to answer. And I was thinking about it. And really, I was sitting on my couch this morning drinking coffee. And the answer that kind of came to me was, in a way, it was my faith that was my identity way before being queer, before I could even accept that that part. Like, my faith was my identity. And then I had to unlearn that or, or wrestle with it and figure out. Because I started realizing that I was gay when I was 11, I think I had some ideas before then, but 11 was really when I first started kind of having that idea of like, wait a second, I'm attracted to dudes and it doesn't, (laughs) it doesn't seem like the other dudes around me, like they're, they're feeling it for girls. Something is, is off here. (laughs) Right. Like, like that moment you kind of go, you're just living life because one lives life. And then you realize certain uniqueness perhaps compared to everyone else around you. It's just like, oh, I am unique in some way or I'm different. Yeah. And I thought I was awful because I was, it was I grew up in such a conservative family. I knew somewhere deep in my gut that this wasn't okay. And so I started, I think it was basically right when I first started realizing, like I started begging God to be like, please, can you just make me normal? I don't want to live this way. I don't want to be gay. I don't want to go to hell. And my faith was so much a part of my identity that, the first time that I said I'm gay to someone, I was 19 or 20. I was in college. At that point, pretty much half your lifetime you spent trying to get to a point of yeah. making that confession. Like, that's right? a big move, right? Yeah, because I was so scared that when when those words came out of my mouth, I like expected lightning. Or I expected like Satan to pop up and be like, I've got you now. <laughs> I mean, it was all those things I thought like to say as my identity to say I am gay as as an identifier. 
I thought it would mean that I would be selling my soul over to something other than God. And it took a lot of work to get over that. And that's kind of what I'm curious actually is talking about today. I mean, I went back before we talked. I I was so excited to be able to kind of have this opportunity to put you in the hot seat. Mm-hmm. I was really curious and, and love about one of the things I love about queerology and, and the celebration we have at this two-year point of what it's become is that you've somehow been in the middle of this kind of What's very clear when you listen to the history of queerology, to me as a listener, is the piecing together of stories. Mm. This kind of, you know, none of us ever, if you listen to any of these stories, not one single story says, I know what my de- identity was from the beginning. Right. I, it was all pieced together and there it was for me. Like, that's always kind of this ongoing fluidity. So what I'm curious about is when you talk about the growth of that I- identity the origin stories of where that began, this particular manifestation of queerology is a really great symbol of, mm. but I am so fascinated that you're willing to share with us the insight into your own personal space. So mm. that kind of, you you talked about starting with like religion as like this, your faith as being part of that identity growing up and having to undo it. Mm-hmm. Where, I mean, I guess it's really hard to pinpoint, but give what did it feel like? Like pick an age or pick a moment. Can you tell us a story about what that really kind of felt like? Mm-hmm. Like a day or a moment that just made that kind of come to know that there was a work to be done there for you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember I was probably 12 or 13, went to this summer camp in rural Iowa. I grew up in Iowa. God bless the Midwest. Right? <laughs> it's, it's a great place to grow up if you're straight. and like, Right. <laughs> so I was at this summer camp, tiny little summer camp, rural Iowa, in chapel. For some reason, someone in front of me had this Bible. And they opened it up, and I was looking over their shoulder, and I, and I saw these lists of questions that were at the front of this Bible. And one of them was, what does God think about homosexuality? You're kidding. Right? Like printed? Like printed in the front wow. of this Bible. Um, and it was like all, it was like, it was like this whole section of like, here are all of these questions of today's day, like in all of God's answers to them. So they had like Bible <laughs> verses listed. And I saw that and I thought, I have to get my hands on that Bible because I, at that, up to that point, I had never, like, I had heard people talk about LGBT issues occasionally, but I had never seen like what scripture actually so said or so I thought. So I went home and I begged my parents to let me buy this Bible. And I come from a family that we weren't poor, but we didn't have much money at all. Like My parents didn't have expendable income. So to buy like a $15 Bible, it was something that I had then had to work for and save up for <laughs> to buy this Bible. So I did that. I did chores. I saved up $15 to buy the extreme teen Bible. What a good um, kid you were. I know. <laughs> And I got it. And I remember getting it in the mail, waiting for my parents to leave the house, opening it up, finding that that question, and opening the Bible up to Leviticus. <laughs> Good starting place, 12-year-old right? you. Uh-huh, right? <laughs> and seeing men who lie with men should be stoned and thrown into the pit of hell or whatever it says. And I, like, shut the Bible and just was terrified. And remember thinking like, oh, no, that's me. 
I don't want to be stoned, so I need to do something about this. So that was kind of the start of like, oh, the Bible actually says like this is horrible. <laughs> I was terrified. I was terrified. Well, I, I realize this is a massive leap forward in time. Mm. But can you point to a time where you began to initiate your own positive moves into that inquisition against that? Yeah. I was an undergrad, went to a small Christian college in Arkansas. Uh, I had just read the book Washed and Waiting by Wesley Hill, which is the side B. Uh, for people who don't know what side B means, like it's that movement that says that the LGBTQ people need to stay celibate. And Wesley was kind of the, the leader of the movement of that movement at the time. He still is at some point. But I read that book and I remember thinking, if I'm going to commit myself to staying celibate, because that was kind of my action plan at that point, I'd gotten to the point of accepting like, okay, I'm gay. These feelings probably aren't going to go away. I shouldn't probably go to therapy to, to get rid of these. This I'm going to live with this, but I'm going to be celibate. So I read that book. And then I thought, if I'm going to make such a drastic choice, like if I'm going to commit myself to a lifetime of celibacy, <laughs> <laughs> of singleness. You're a monk now. Right? <laughs> like at 19 years old, or 20 years old, I don't remember how old I was. It felt like a massive decision. And I had heard that there were there was this other little group of people out in the world who believed that you could be queer and Christian. Actually, that year was the year that you came out. So I saw oh, that so you had, long ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Back in my day. <laughs> but I had people sending me that article and seeing like, oh, like Jennifer Knapp, like I, I grew up listening to her and she's saying like, this is okay. There's this whole other world out there. I need to figure out what they're saying before I make this decision. And that was when I started really diving in to theology and, and, and scripture and, and trying to parse out, is there another way in here that I haven't been told about? And sure enough, like there was. It's interesting that you're very, I don't mean this as an insult at all. Um, <laughs> you you seem like a very cerebral person and, yeah. and methodical, methodical Matthias. But you're not, I mean, <laughs> I mean, but at the same time, it, it feels very spirit driven. Like when I'm around you, I never feel like you're trying to crack problem or solve it with some script. Mm -hmm. There's a very spiritual part of that, that that comes out of your experience. I mean, do you, like, at what point in your, I mean, you've made a life of this, so I don't necessarily want to jump the gun or, like, stereotype you into that. But I'm I'm really curious, like, so you've done, you're doing this work for yourself personally, but mm -hmm. this has transformed into something that's a life work for you. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you, has, is that a tangent? I mean, what's the relationship between the fact that this is a work thing? <laughs> mm. You know, like, this is something that you committed to to share in some sense but it's still, at least in the, the the timeline that you're describing, an undergraduate, that's still an ongoing work for you. Yeah. Like, what is the relationship with that? And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I realize that's kind of an open-ended question, but like, I guess an undergrad takes a form of a question like, okay, what were you doing in undergrad? What was your career path? What did you imagine it to be? Because oh, is yeah. it the same way as it is now? Or Oh, not at all. That was, I did my undergraduate work in graphic design uh, and photography. 
and had chosen the school that I went to for that. They had a really good design program. That was my plan. I was like, I'm going to be a graphic designer. And I thought I was going to do that for the rest of my life. So when I started studying theology (laughs) and really diving in and started realizing that I was enjoying it and then started considering the idea of maybe getting a master's in theological work, that caught me completely off guard because I didn't think. Did that seem paradoxical at that time still? Like kind of this conflict that we often kind of talk about with LGBTQ and commitment to doing faith work, essentially. Mm -hmm. Like, did that seem like you were invading some space that you didn't have a right to? Was that a thing? Or did was that something that you kind of took on rebelliously or none of the above? <laughs> no, I think it was, I kept my parents in the loop as I started kind of diving into scripture. Because I think I thought at the time, if I find all these arguments and then present them to my parents in ways that make sense to me... <laughs> They're going to change their mind just like I will. Like, And so I, I kept them in the loop and then started getting these like 10 page long letters from my dad telling me how wrong I was. And I think that was kind of the, the thing of like me realizing like, OK, wait, if I'm going to convince my parents, I need to know this way better than I currently do. And so then I think it went on like if I get a master's in this, then maybe my parents will change their minds. I, I've let go of that hope now. <laughs> okay, so I don't. I didn't expect to go here, but I, I yesterday I listened to a pod, one of my favorite podcasts called Conversations. Mm. Um, it's out of Australia. I think it's the ABC Network, famously hosted by Richard Feidler. It oh, kind of cost me a stop, part of stop. myself. <laughs> I was trying to play. I was trying to get call up, but it was a podcast of this woman. The title of it's called How to Change a Mind, mm. and. What I found fascinating about it, this is a a young woman who grew up like doing debate and was basically making, trying to make a profession or her whole self-worth kind of around this idea of the ability that we have with logic and reason to change people's minds. Mm -hmm. And it does. It takes pages, like you were saying, it takes pages and pages. But at the end of the day, like, it's not really that of effective way. Right. Of transforming people, and which is really the bread and butter, right, of where we've been with LGBTQ stuff. I think the lesson queerology shows in the long run that it's a narrative experience from from the individual to the community. Yeah. So you're having these kind of 10 page, like you're thinking the same, that's all to say is like, you're thinking the same thing as your dad. If you make a compelling enough argument, you can get your father to believe in you. And if he can make it, and I'm sure on the other side of it, he thought if I can make a compelling enough argument, my son will believe in me. Yeah, Yeah. Was there a point in there that you kind of, you know, found like, what was your solution to that? I guess in some way, like, or are you working that out now? Or like, mm-hmm. It's ongoing. I, th- I think initially I didn't want to have that fight with my parents. And so after kind of a summer of theological work, I tabled it. You know what? I am just going to be single. It's easier. Then I started having more conversations with my parents. They didn't even seem satisfied with the celibacy option. Like I, I realized my dad wanted me to be straight. And they tell me that this isn't true now, um, (laughs) that they would have been perfectly fine with me being celibate. But those conversations at the time, like there was that underlying sense of, no, you need to marry a woman and have a family. After 
moments of that, it, it was a realization like no matter what I do, my parents aren't going to think I'm living the life that I should be. I need to figure right. this out for myself. For what it's worth, I think that kind of always happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and like, the, like, it's like I've kind of comforted with myself through the years that there's a variety of ways I'm disappointing to others. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. not just one. Mm-hmm. That it takes a certain amount of audacity and courage to kind of find the next step that's true and, and authentic to your own experience. Yeah. That is somewhat always, I think, has at least micro moments of rebellion and... Yeah. A sense of feeling like, yeah, like you have to, like, there's a weird thing about growing up, I think, somewhere in there that you have to take the risk to go, I might not be what you imagined. Mm-hmm. And the, the particularity of that for LGBTQ people, because it's so significant to our sense of being, is, is you just can't sidestep it. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, okay, so you... I'm just using the timeline as a track, really, yeah. but so you you kind of double down. You know, embracing theology at some point, was it was it still at a place of rebellion for you or did it feel like an acceptance or both? By the time I got to grad school, it was a more acceptance. It was more of a, I have all of these questions that I want to explore <laughs> and to explore for myself. And the only way I'm going to have like the time and space to do that is give myself a couple years formally to explore those questions. So it was way less this kind of, I need to convince people because at that point I had already tried to convince so many people, not just my parents, but I I had come out. i had had my community from like, I I was homeschooled growing up. So, so all of these people from former lives in Iowa, like trying to convince me that I'm on this path of sin. I argued with them until my face was blue and (laughs) And it didn't work. I'm not so, knocking blue, but you're pretty. You're pretty good with the color that you are. Like, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> you're pretty cute that way. Like, and I realized arguing didn't work, and so I was like, you know what? I need to figure this out. Like I said, I need to figure this out for myself. Like I want to explore these things. I want to explore this idea of who I think God actually is, and find a God who loves and accepts me. I'd seen glimpses of of that God. So this is a really personal question. Okay. When did reaching out and getting help from others in a, a therapeutic environment become an option for you? When did that light bulb go off? Because that's a big move to say mm. that one needs help. Mm-hmm. Where did you get that idea from? When did it, what prompted that for you? Yeah. You know, it was, there's kind of two answers to that question. One Back when I was in undergrad, my freshman year, my mom had been talking about me going to therapy for most of my high school years, kind of gently pressuring me to start talking to someone with the goal of conversion therapy at that point. (laughs) Uh, I'm not laughing. It's just at anyone. It's just that kind of discomfort of going, you know, sometimes there are people outside of us that are encouraging us to do something holy and good for ourselves, but somewhat still have an imagination of who will be at the end of it. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So my freshman year, that's what I, that's, I, I went to therapy and went in with the goal of like, I literally said, I don't want to be this way anymore. I want you to help me overcome my same sex attractions and then I can be normal, which meant straight. Thankfully, the therapist that I went to 
my first session was like, that's not how this works. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, it's always a good sign of a therapist when you walk in and they say, um, yeah, this is how this is, you know, like, yeah, yeah, that's not how this works. We don't make you into something. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Ever. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> yeah. So I spent a year with him. That was fine. Like, I, I accepted myself more. I, I think he got me onto a better path. And then it didn't even cross my mind again until grad school. And honestly, the thing that got me back into therapy was the requirement when I started my own master's program in counseling. Mm -hmm. The school that I went to requires everyone who wants to be a therapist to go into their own therapy while they're in the program. Yeah. Which I think is so important. Was that terrifying Um, to you or did you welcome it? Yeah. No, I didn't want to. I, I mean, therapy <laughs> is expensive. I like. I didn't know what would come up. I didn't think I needed it, so it was forced. But I, like, I went in my first session and said to my therapist, "I don't know how to cry, and I don't know how to be angry. <laughs> Those two emotions don't exist in my life: sadness and anger. I mean, we've been working on that ever since." <laughs> Wow. Like, I don't know that I've ever heard anyone say that. Like, okay, (laughs) I'm coming into this place. I don't know how to cry and I don't know how to be mad. I'm a big fan of therapy as well. I have written down and said many times, like, the secret to my resiliency is cognitive therapy and patience. Yeah. Yeah. Like, there's just, you know, I was listening to your podcast with Candice Zerbinat. One of the things you guys talked on is the value that stuck out with me is the value of the personal investment in those moments that we didn't always kind of know, which is really interesting that you went through that. You know, I, I, I found it interesting the first thing you think of, and it's always the first thing I think of as well, is I can't financially afford right. this. It's We kind of leverage something against the other. But yeah, there is a kind of a concept of trying to kind of engage a, a kind of self-care that says, I am worth the effort and the time to be able discover the person that I can be mm-hmm. in its fruitfulness. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it's really interesting to hear you say, like, I still don't know how to do this thing. <laughs> <laughs> I've gotten better. I now cry at a pin drop. So that means, I mean, he's done his job, I guess. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I call that. I like to tell my friends not to worry if they see. I say that's leaking. I'm just yeah. leaking. Don't be afraid. <laughs> I'm just crying. So I'm feeling. It's good. <laughs> Yeah, every day when I'm on Instagram, I like I see dogs and just start weeping. Oh my gosh, <laughs> you're so kind and gentle. He cries at puppies. Yeah. <laughs> so when you set down all, I know there's probably a lot that goes into like the manifestation of queerology, mm-hmm. but I want to take you back. I want to hear what was in your mind when you before queerology had a name, mm-hmm. and you settled in with yourself and said started dreaming about something to be made or to be done. What was that conversation? As an example, like I sit around and the things that I end up doing oftentimes are because something doesn't exist and I think I have to make it. And I'm so arrogant to think that I can. (laughs) Did you have that experience? I'm just curious if you had that experience and if you did, what were the voices in your head? (laughs) Yeah. So the podcast kind of birthed out of, I think as a lot of things do, a really painful experience in my life in that I went through my first true heartbreak kind of breakup Mm. that knocked me out I was 
depressed. And I, I had been blogging on and off kind of up until that point, which is kind of what got me into this world was my was my blog. But when this breakup happened, I stopped writing. I, you know, spent days in bed. I, I was I was depressed. As I started to come out of that depression, I started kind of thinking about, like, do I want to go back to writing about this or do I want to try something different? This idea of a podcast kind of started popping up all over the place. But my initial thoughts were, like, like you know Kevin Garcia, right? Yes. Yeah. Kevin, and Kevin is a very dear friend of mine. Kevin had started his podcast I don't know, probably a year, year and a half before I even thought about the podcasting world. And my initial thoughts whenever the idea of a podcast came up was, well, Kevin's already doing that. Kevin already has a (laughs) podcast. I remember when Kevin started blogging, I was pissed at him for blogging in in my (laughs) space. Like, (laughs) Oh my gosh, as a creative, let me just tell you, you've already hit on two of the key things that always pop up that kill creativity. Mm -hmm. They're, They're all the negative things that just go... Oh, somebody else is doing it. So right. like that, the ingenuity that we kind of want steals away from our joy of that uniqueness. And it's a killer. <laughs> it is. Yeah. I didn't want to encroach on Kevin's space. Mm. Because this isn't like this queer faith, like Christian-y world is not a big one. <laughs> and I was like, there's already one podcast out there. What could I do differently? So I actually remember sitting in... Uh, the Edgewater Hotel, which is a hotel here in Seattle that's literally on one of the piers. So it's over the water, looking out on the Olympic Mountains with a glass of wine with a friend of mine who has her own podcast with an organization called the Allender Center. And she's one of my mentors. Her name's Rachel. And Rachel and I were talking about the fact that the Allender Center had just started their own podcast. She was going on and on about how how hard it was, but also how neat it was to see all of these people that they didn't even really know engaging with their work. That was when it clicked for me. Oh, I, I kind of want to try that. And and if Rachel can do it, I can do it. <laughs> that was the day that I was like, I'm going to start a podcast. Was there just at the do Edgewater. It. Yeah, like just, <laughs> just start it. <laughs> it. You know, it's amazing to me. Like, I love these little moments. I love picking them out and go, see what happened there? See what happened there? Like, yeah. these am- amazing moments of permission. They're never really people saying, yes, Matthias, go and do this. You have per- my permission and my authority mm. to grant it to you. But those mm. little moments of generosity that if you're paying attention or even looking back, and you go, oh, wow, like, Somebody un- and in that moment of generosity unlocks something very kind mm-hmm. and says, do it. Say mm-hmm. yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then the tricky part of that is, and I've been dying to ask you this question. Great. Where did you get the audacity to call me? <laughs> like, <laughs> and I mean that like kind of in a tongue-in-cheek way, but I didn't realize until well after you Queerology was up and running, I'd said yes to do it. I was happy to talk to you. I didn't it wasn't until we kind of hooked up in real life later that you said, Oh yeah, you were my first podcast. And I was like, What wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> you know. And so you know, it's it's lovely that you're sharing the vulnerability it takes to say yes to something like this. Mm-hmm. And then within the first, I mean, there are quite a few. Like right off the bat, you're calling some pretty heavy hitters. 
Mm-hmm. The kinds of, like, I imagine, because I do this, I meet art, other artists that mean something to me in my real life, in my regular life. And then when I've met them in real life, I am a hot mess. Mm. Like, I can't talk. I stammer and I stutter. It takes a lot of courage sometimes to meet the people who have been influential and we know carry something of import that we want to talk to. Yeah. Like, yeah. And yet, here you've done it. You went from a place of going, I, you know, having just somebody else exist in the world and doing this thing and challenging your own sense of uniqueness to bring to this conversation. Mm-hmm. And then getting people to say yes to your endeavor when you have no track record of doing this. Like, where mm-hmm. did you get the gumption to do that next leap? Ugh. I want to know. I really yeah, do want to know. Like, I don't even know how to do that. Like, I'm. that's not even a weighted question. I am mining this for courage right now. I'll have you know. Yeah. So everything oh, you gosh. say waits in yeah. the balance. <laughs> so, I mean, in some ways, I don't want to say like, oh, I've always done, I've always been that way. But in some ways, like, I remember when I was 11 years old, I wanted to make a movie. I thought I was going to be a movie director when I was, yeah, around 11, 10, 11. I was like, I want to be a movie director. So I decided to make this movie with my friends. I remember calling up the nicest hotel in town. It was like this boutique hotel. And I thought it would be a great set for one of the scenes in the movies. And at 11 years old, I called them. I asked to speak with like the owner manager of the hotel and then pitched him on this idea. (laughs) Then he asked me like, okay, so what production company are you for? Are you with? And and I was like, oh, I'm actually 11 years old. (laughs) Oh my God. That you told him. Like, I'm like that's even cooler. Yeah. <laughs> oh, let me tell you how awesome this is going to be, dude. I'm 11. I'm 11. <laughs> yeah. And he said yes. And and I think, like, those experiences of having, when I was very, very, very little, like, the, the incredible kindness of all of these people to be, like, to let an 11-year-old walk in to make his little home movie and give me everything I asked for. Like, that was so kind of them. Oh. So beautiful. Right? Like, I mean, it was small town Iowa, too. So we weren't in a big city. It was middle of nowhere, Iowa. (laughs) But still, that, I think, kind of gave me this, (laughs) this idea that when you ask people, more often than not, they say yes. And it doesn't hurt to ask. And then if they say no, then I mean, so be it. So when I thought about this podcast, I knew I wanted to launch with someone who had some name recognition. I had some people in mind and you were kind of my long shot because I didn't have any connection to you at the time. Like I didn't know any of your people. I didn't know like degrees of, I didn't know people who knew you. So I just, it was a cold contact and you happened to be the first person to to say yes. And I was thrilled. <laughs> so do you, I mean, you're talking about like how, you know, there's more and more work out there, right? Where we're being able to see LGBTQ voices, particularly the kind of care that it takes to specifically engage faith as well. Mm. I mean, do you kind of see yourself as part of a movement now or, Mm. and if Mm -hmm. so, like what, how would you talk about what that movement is to you? What do you imagine yourself a part of? Yeah. There's no right or wrong. Like, you know what I mean? Like, right, right, right. I just, I sit back sometimes and I'm kind of going, wow, there's something going on here that I didn't plan on. And yet I'm knee deep in the middle of, mm-hmm. I'm just curious, like how that rolls out for somebody where you're at. I think my answer is like, yes and no. I, I think back to 
2014, 2013, 2014, 2015, like those years when kind of Matthew Vines had just written his book, Vicky Beeching had just come out, Justin Lee had just released a book. Like there was kind of all of this groundswell mm. that felt like we're in the midst of something big. Something's going to happen. We're right on the cusp of of LGBTQ people being fully accepted in most faith spaces. Like I, I remember Vicky's keynote that year at, at the Gay Christian Network conference. Uh, or no, no, no. She, it was at the Reformation Project. And her saying, we have built this wave. And that wave is about to come crashing down in churches all over the world. And being so excited. We're going to do this. And now here we are in 2019. I mean, it's happened a little bit, but not really. But I think we've had a lot of setbacks, a lot more setbacks. And I think a lot of us are a lot wiser because of that. So all that to say, it doesn't feel like maybe a movement as much as it felt back then. (laughs) Mm. I think people are living their lives in ways like I think that's some of what for me I've learned from doing this podcast is like there are so many of us out there who are just living lives we're, we're doing cool things but it's we're not trying to build this this massive movement necessarily anymore but instead are just out there in the world living lives we're normal people writing talking like a lot of us are are all have our own blogs or podcasts or whatever like we're reaching out and it's just normal (laughs) (laughs) which to me is it's it seems rather pedestrian or mundane right to say that but at the same time it's like i have no extraordinary firework to light off here like Mm -hmm. and that in and of itself is actually extraordinary in its own way and has a i don't know i think it's a for me, it's a beautiful kind of rest and peace mm-hmm. to not necessarily think that every time that grace appears, that it announces itself in a tidal wave of, you know, a physicality, that it's sometimes right. just a gentle lack of contest against our being, I think. Mm-hmm. Does that, I mean, does that surprise you in any sense? I mean, does that feel like anticlimactic to you or does it feel peaceful? Both. I think there's some <laughs> there's some grief in that year that kind of year and a half when it felt like everything was about to take off. I don't feel that way anymore. Um, I don't know. Other people might, so this may just be a personal thing on my my end. There's grief in that of like we didn't do what we thought, or maybe not we didn't do it. Things didn't change the way we thought things were gonna change. I, I think it's similar to kind of like my parents. Like my parents didn't change the way I thought they were gonna change. So to hold the grief of that and kind of the beauty of, and we're still here, like we're still doing this work. A lot of us are getting healthier by the day. We're doing our own work. And I think a lot of times when we're on the front end of kind of movement building, a lot of people get left behind in their own selves, Mm. if that makes sense. And I'm seeing people get healthy and living fulfilling lives and in some ways that feels way more satisfying than trying to convince all the straight people that we have the right to exist. We're here. We're existing. <laughs> and I think that kind of leads me to a question I was really eager to ask you. It kind of touches, I think you touched on something a little bit of my sense sometimes of 
I don't want to say frustration, but grief's a really good word of thinking that if I just push hard enough and I break down enough that the work Mm -hmm. will be finished and I'll stop doing that. But the other side of it that I also know that life is ongoing and it's fruitful and it's discipline and the hard work of it's a really wonderful gift. Mm -hmm. And I hear a lot of like, that's kind of tied up into the sense sometime I think for people who work and pay attention specifically to these intersections and do kind of activist and advocacy activities around LGBTQ affirmation and in faith communities, it's really exhausting. Sometimes the bar doesn't always move where you think it will with the amount of energy you put into it. Mm -hmm. What is the, so I'm just always kind of curious with other people who are kind of in this space, like what's the carrot? Like what's the hope that really does put more wind in your sails? What gets you up in the morning in the way that's refreshing and invigorating to you that and hope-giving? Mm-hmm. Or what do you do to try and fan right. it into flame? <laughs> <laughs> like for me, like there's pretty good hours of PlayStation roll in there. Totally. Like, yeah, <laughs> like yeah, yeah, yeah. The self, brainless self-care. As, I'm not kidding you. Like that is a thing. 100%. But there's also um, wanting to get, you know, getting re-energized and back to the things that actually got you here in the first place. So mm-hmm. what's the carrot these days for you? For me now, like I feel like, so I started doing this work wanting to build bridges and change people. That was my goal. Now that I've seen tastes of watching queer people be able to hold their faith alongside them in abundance and like I said like move into more healthy spaces I mean that's the carrot in some ways because I've experienced that in my own life like the beauty of being able to live a content life and and that feels I mean that feels kind of cerebral and and woo woo (laughs) but to watch it happen I mean I think I mean that's my job I'm a therapist um to watch it happen and see the life that comes out of that. I mean, that's kind of what this podcast is, is is to show that there's life and it's not focused anymore on trying, like I said, trying to convince straight people that we have the right to exist. It's, it's more reaching out to all of the other queer people out there who are still in Iowa <laughs> yeah, and reading their Bibles and reading Leviticus and thinking, oh my God, I'm going to go to hell. Like showing like, no, there's life here. God is here. I don't, does that answer your question? Is that what you were asking? (laughs) There's no answer to it really. You know, it's, it's just part of that. You know, I just appreciate hearing as a, just as a human being, I just appreciate being in a conversation with other, I, I, Here's what Queerology, I'm going to make you listen to this for a second. Like, here's what Queerology has done for me. And a host of any LGBTQ people who make the decision to just share a story, the kind of vulnerability that it takes to go, you know, I'm here. This is what I think I know. I'm not finished yet. What the hell is everybody else doing? All the, you know, all the willingness and vulnerability and courage it takes for each one of us to be able to kind of. I don't want to say make public, but be willing to be vulnerable and share that, right? Mm. What queerology helps facilitate is this long story, because I I think so many of us share the same kind of story that you shared, where we live in our own little private Iowas, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. these kind of circles that we can only see so far in the place that we grew up, and not know that there are options out there, not know that there are other people having that same experience, and for 
every single, and like you talk about that, and I, I had that same experience as well. We're saying like, where are the resources? Where are the other stories? Where are the people like me in some sense? And that seemed so, so slim pickings, mm. <laughs> um, even a decade ago. Mm. And the, what's happening is each of us have the courage to share our stories as each of us are willing to invest in the facilitating of that and learning of that together that those it's not slim pickings anymore right. and i have like this visual in my mind that the the little boy from iowa doesn't have to go out but the little boy from iowa just has to look up yeah that it's you know come to us in our place of where we need it and like for me, that's why I continue to love the story of queerology, and I'm deeply pr proud of you for stepping into this space and being a part of it on a personal level and putting your story into that mix with us on queerology today. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> it's been a fun ride. Yeah, it has been a fun ride. Wasn't like wasn't that fun? <laughs> Huge thank you to Jennifer for taking over the podcast today. Um, when she had that idea last summer, I was like, we are doing this. We are doing this. <laughs> and a big thank you to you. Like, I just feel so grateful on this two-year anniversary. We have hit almost 250,000 downloads of Queerology. And to everyone who supports the podcast through sharing it, through giving money on Patreon, through leaving reviews, through telling your friends about it, it is because of you that I am able to make this podcast, keep making it every week. I'm grateful. I'm grateful. So thank you. Thank you for making Queerology what it is. And here is to another two years, another four years, another 10 years. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Until next week, y'all. Bye.